Welcome to CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care, episode number 147. I'm Wolfgang Vachon. Today we are continuing the panel discussion we started last month about the research project Understanding Non-Financial Barriers to Black Queer Youth Transitioning from High School to College. To remind you, the conversation took place with a whole bunch of people, including myself, Canary Branco, Elise Youssef, Carlene Williams-Clark, Dr. Lance McCready, and Tanitia Monroe. Before we return to the discussion, I'd like to let you know that you can now listen to CYC Podcast on Spotify, as well as iTunes and Stitcher. Also, we're still looking for a new editor, so if you have audio editing skills and are interested in helping out, please email me at wolfgang.vachon at humber.ca. Okay, here's the episode. I hope you enjoy it. We've been talking a bit about uh, transitioning and, and, and high schools and teachers and responses. Um, you focus a lot and not not exclusively on, on trans issues. What are some of the issues facing young queer um, women, trans women, lesbians um, in, in high school that might be a barrier to education? <laughs> I'd say honestly... Um a barrier I know that I I uh, I experienced a lot was not knowing if not uh, not necessarily knowing but like being the only black queer person at my school, you know. And I and at that time I wasn't even out. Um, I would like walk around the ha- the hallways and like talk to other people, but no one ever identified that way. So it never made me feel comfortable or it never made me feel safe to say like, oh, okay, like this is my sexual identity, right? Even even though, um, you know, there probably were some other students and, and staff members as well, teachers who would identify the same way I would. Um, it was just, it just made it really hard for me to even, you know, be and express myself the way I wanted to, you know. Um, it took my high school three years to to even have a safe space for LGBTQ um, students, right? Um, the third year, and I was leaving, you know, the, the fourth year, and I was a little bit disappointed. Even with that space that, you know, started to exist, it was then again um, very white. You know, uh, there were no students of color in, in, you know, that club, the LGBTQ club. Right. So I didn't even feel like I would want to be part of that club. I felt very, very um, invisible in high school. And I kept very quiet about my sexuality. And, you know, um, until after I graduated, until I moved uh, on to college. And then I found that there actually were other uh, queer black. There are actually other queer um, black women and, and, and people um, at, at like that, that attended the same high school. Right. But that took us about, you know, two, three years later of us graduating uh, for us to come together and be like, you know, hey, like this was <laughs> happening in school and no one no one ever knew. Wow. Um, just to touch on that as well. Um, so we had a lot of participants that talked about bullying and just like um, their homophobic experiences and just recounted like just the painful interactions between teachers and school admins, right? And even people in place like youth uh, workers like myself who couldn't understand the concept around being a queer person or, or, or just blackness and just being in that space. And I really want to like 
just kind of trouble that word safe space as well because it can be a place that you are targeted and you can also as a black queer lesbian trans um youth um be afraid to go to that safe space because um you don't know what the rest of um, the student body will say seeing you go in enter that space so i just feel like school on on um should everywhere should be a safe space you know and it comes with the labeling of just small things uh, to make um, the place feel like it's welcoming like uh, posters and having these conversations in larger classes and not just a small room tucked in a corner that's right. what i see in most uh, schools as safe spaces yeah. right yeah, yeah so at least did you did you have something you wanted to add at that? Uh, I was going to say the reason why we actually most of us don't think about post-secondary education is because transitioning is like going to school to begin with right. at the end of the day like I had to learn how to become who I am every mm. single day and being a woman is something that sometimes is like was never taught to me at all so at the end of the day like it's a year to year like it's every year I understand what kind of woman I am more mm. right and so the like the, the things that I I'm, I've been concentrating on the whole entire time the last thing I'm thinking about is post-secondary education, right? Didn't the day, right? Because, I mean, the world is already so mean as it is, and I understand that I have to conform to it, right? And so that being said, once you get to a point of understanding who you are, then those type of things can actually like, cross your mind to begin with. Nice. I know Lance had something to say, and Carlene as well. Yeah, I just... Um, that's been a big... These are Both these are big issues that have come up in my research a lot. So... One is that once you either come out or um, publicly identify as queer, a lot, one of the things that a lot of young people have to contend with is the withdrawal of support. Um, that So the teachers, um, the family members, your friends that once were supportive of you sometimes now then say they can no longer be supportive of you. The church that you went to, they're no longer supportive of you. So it's really this withdrawal of support, which is a huge issue. And because even relating it specifically to education, in order to really get access to education, you need support. You need support of counselors, your teachers, your family members, a lot of times your friends. Um, so this is a huge issue. The other issue that's come up and in this project that I'm still, I don't really know what to do with, is transitioning takes a lot of energy. And it's this whole other sort of, as you're saying, education in and of itself. So... When we think about access to post-secondary, can post-secondary, can college and university actually help or maybe provide some resources to assist with transitioning? Or do you just not really even push an agenda around post-secondary access for young people who are transitioning? Or because... This this has come up in the focus group and a lot of my other work is just like, I'm transitioning. I've got too much other stuff. I'm just trying to stay, like, keep myself together. I can't think about school right now. I think, Elise, yeah. you were, like, yeah. we were talking before. 
and you shared um, just Elise was sharing her experience prior to getting your job. So I think you could touch on that a bit, mm-hmm. just like where your headspace was at. Well, I mean, the first yeah. year was horrible, right? <laughs> the second year got better. And I realized, weird enough as it may sound, I feel like a lot of the people that did abandon, it was not, it was fear of what other people thought, right? And for all, for some autistic reason, now everybody's coming out of the woodworks, right? And so because that transition phase is kind of slightly over, like now when I walk down the street, I, I don't get misgendered. I live a normal cisgendered woman kind of looking life. And that being said, all those people, it was the fear of what how other people would view me, right? And that now I I can think about post-secondary education, right? Because that at that period of time, like I had to, like now I'm at the point in my life where I identify and I feel and I look the way that I am and the world sees me this way, right? But if I was to go to any type of schooling and I'm not finished or feel, don't feel comfortable with myself, I mean, to be misgendered is kind of crappy, right? At the end of the day, to go to school with a different ID than you really are, it's totally messed up, right? So I totally understand why someone would have to finish their transition, which is kind of like a three-year period, I would say. Like, you know, like I'm almost on the fourth year now. And then things get easier. And then when that becomes like a back burner, because now I don't really think about that stuff anymore, I can, instead of trying to like survive, I can try to thrive, right? So that's that's where my focus is at now, so. And that's, I just wanted to say, um, just touch back on like the lack of support. I also feel like a lot of youth, you're right, they do lose that support. You know, it's hard for you to think about going to a post-secondary education when you're homeless, you know, or again, you have no parent to support you, you know, into even helping you apply with like, you know, post-secondary education. So, you know, you need to find a job, you need to find somewhere to live, you know, you might even have to change your whole life completely, find new friends. And, and that takes, you're right. It takes a lot of energy. So thinking of, you know, that next step in your life, going to like university college is going to be put on the back burner. And I just want to just talk about, um, cause I, I need to give voice to the immigrant women that come mm-hmm. newcomers mm-hmm. and, um, just hearing their stories. Like a lot of them come with their credentials. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And like myself, I had to dig through to find where do I go to as- assess all my stuff. You know, I was coming from Jamaica with degrees and had I not have that knowledge to go on the computer and say, hey, look it up, I would know where to go and assess my stuff. So it's knowing that a lot of newcomer um, queer women don't know this because, again, it's survival, right? Mm-hmm. It's OK, I need somewhere to live. I need a job right now to feed myself and I need shelter, right? Just just all of that, right? But when they do come to that space where they do want to, hey, let me move up, let me um, let me go advance myself or where can I go with this? A lot of them, one of the barriers that they face is when they do go and present their, um, their uh, credentials, they're told it's not worth anything. So, of course, they're going to feel isolated, alienated, right? And defeated, right? So, um, something needs to be done with that. And I do know um, Carlene, um, in her newcomer program, like, they educate uh, um, newcomers about, like, where they can go and do stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. But it's bridging that gap, right? Because there is a barrier. And it depends on where on the wor- in the world you're from, then your credentials is accepted, I'm from the Caribbean, but not all Caribbean countries' credentials are accepted. Likewise, uh, in Africa or wherever else in the world. So we need to look at that process here. And um, a lot of them are amazingly bright women. They were bankers (laughs) in our research. 
um, teachers, like people like who do the work here, but that barrier to say, hey, you're not worth, you're not worth it. You don't have the Canadian experience. So we need to, we need to look at that as well. We definitely have to look at things like that. Um, And, you know, these women are also um, coming with um, other trauma, you know, that they face back home and that space of, and and coming here too, not because of just their sexual orientation. Um, You know, they're coming from places where, you know, they can be, their racial selves and then coming here and facing the the racism you mm-hmm. know that hits them dead in the face and um trying to survive trying to have legal status having to rehash all the trauma that they've been through and then no trying to make sure that their credentials are up to standard they're mm-hmm. trying to feed families maybe children that they've left back home as well some of them have accomplished a lot of you know the great job and you know the qualification then coming here not having that canadian experience and having to go get their um their credentials um um you know assessed to see what it's worth and um and and then still need to live, need to be their authentic mm-hmm. self, need mm-hmm. to make sure that they're taking care of themselves and mentally also, because a lot of mental health comes into place for an, a, a newcomer woman, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a newcomer queer and trans woman as well, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's all these extra baggages that they face. And, you know, while they'll say, honestly, I don't just want to do this kind of menial job. I just want, I really want to, this is really where I want to go. I want to go back to where I was when I was back in my home country. I just wanted to get to that stage again. But the steps here to get there, there's so mm-hmm. many. It doesn't make it any easier. And even though they come with a lot of experience, you know, it's actually getting there and, and getting to do the first few years of those steps. You know, it's really challenging. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, folks struggle. And by the end of, you know, their process, they're they so they feel so defeated that they're like you know I'm just going to do what I can just to survive because it's going to take so much more to you know to go further and advance myself you know um and 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 be on the Canadian level. Yeah. So what is the role then of community organizations? So we've we've heard a lot of the you know sure. what's you know the challenges and the obstacles and the struggles sure. and and those are, and I think we have a really good sense of that now. Yes. So what what is the role? Where where does community fit in? How does it help and support? So like at the five nineteen, um, we found that it was important to connect people to to the different services and try to find those um, you know bridges that we can you know can help people to cross over. So we bring, like, for instance, we partner with George Brown, where we had, um, you know, um, one of their their their. Could the you just explain what George Brown is for George listeners? George Brown who don't know? College. Nice. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, one of their professors would come in and um, you know, talk to you know, during our, our information sessions. So we bring different people and we think about we're thinking about the different things and 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 like myself, we've been through the process too and understanding what I wanted and then I came with my qualifications and what it meant and um, knowing you know and, and running a program where I know what you know that people want. So we reach out to different colleges and different um, educational bodies to say, can you come in? Can you, you know, bring and let our folks know what are the things that they need? So mm-hmm. we're partnering with agencies like that who can say, you know, this is these are the steps that you can take. And if you need to take the step, you can connect with us personally and we will take you through that. So community organizations are there to bridge some of these gaps, you know, to help to bridge the other gaps, right? So provide the services, provide the, um, the, the agencies, the bodies that can bring the information 
information, bring information to people and um, give them the necessary referrals that they need, you know, give them the, um, you know, the guidance as well and making sure that you're the sounding board that they can come to and say, this is what I need. So therefore, it's important that community agencies are educating themselves and making sure that they're able to find the necessary support that folks will need to move themselves ahead. In in the um, in the research, one of the things that became very apparent and that sort of came up in the introduction is this idea of a, a erasure or silencing or underrepresentation. And Lance, you talked about just not being on your radar particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it important to have these stories and put these stories and do this research? And what is this going to do? What does this what does naming it and putting it out there? What does that do for Black, trans, queer, racialized, lesbian women. Um, <laughs> Anybody can answer that. that. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, I just want to also add a, a comment about community organizations. They're really important for um, gaining another or a new peer group. Um. I think the um, tell me the name again of a newcomer group at five nineteen among, among friends. One of the reasons why we were excited about working with among friends, and one of the things that we saw clearly when we did a focus group with some of the participants in among friends is they get a network. Right. Even how we gossip about participants, one person tells another person, tells another person. And that's really important when you're transitioning, where you're sort of, quote unquote, coming out or publicly declaring, you know, you're um, a queer or lesbian um, sexuality. So sometimes you need to get a new peer group. Like this is even why I found in my research why a lot of young people leave school for a while because the school is hostile. If you come out in school, then you leave school basically to gain a whole other peer group and a whole other support system because you're not going to get it in school, right? And so a lot of times in the schools, all they see is, oh, dropping out or maybe, you know, being pushed out, but they don't see the whole social dynamic, which is, okay, here's a young person that needs another peer group for their own sort of mental health and survival, right? So that's really, that's really, really important. Um. What does the research do? <laughs> oh, what, the, what does the research do? I mean, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, there are lots of different levels at which research in the best case scenario can um, operate. Sometimes it's what we call evidence, right? Evidence meaning like it um, is proof that there is a need for something or that there's... Um, um, it's important to continue funding something or um, it's evidence that we need to start a new kind of program. Um, sometimes it is basically stories are a form of representation. It's now you get to hear and know that sort of queer and trans young black women exist, that they're thinking about school, that they want to go, you know, they want sort of education or not beyond just education, just bettering their lives to thrive, as you were saying, right? So sometimes, again, since I've done a lot of research in high school, I've heard a lot of teachers or administrators, they say like, oh, I didn't even know like queer youth exists. 
I didn't even know they were here. So that's why we don't have to do anything. Because, I mean, one time I asked a, a principal, is there a GSA in this school? And the principal said, no. And just walked down. Could you just, what, what's a GSA? A, a Gay-Straight Alliance, right? Not saying that Gay-Straight Alliances are the be-all, end-all, and that they're the yeah. best yeah. kind of yeah. organization for supporting um, queer and trans um, young Black women. But, you know, they're a start, they're something, they sort of mean something a lot of times in the context of school that this is at least an important issue to take up. But this principal just said, no, we don't have one. And wasn't, you know, was not concerned at all. So I think so, that that's, I think stories are a form of representation. You know, we, we use the term a lot of times lived experience. You could think of it that way too. But when we talk about needing representations, stories are key for that. Right. And giving voice to the invisible. And that's the worst part, though. At the end of the day, the people that are supposed to be helping you with this whole situation itself don't even think that you exist to begin with, right? And at the end of the, and, yeah. and it being such a scary place to begin with, um, not having any voice whatsoever, and just because you're not seen, like specifically seen, like they, you don't exist, which makes no sense to me. Yeah. And so we have some of this evidence now. You've done a really, really nice job of gathering evidence, hearing stories. We've heard some. We've heard some stories here today. We've heard some experiences today. Where do we go from here? So we, we, I cut you off. You talked about key findings at the very beginning, <laughs> but I want to know about the recommendations, right? So, yeah. so, and and particularly thinking about our listeners who are who are people who are committed to working with children and youth um, of all uh, different varieties. I think um, um, in terms of uh, recommendations um, that we we came up with. Um, <laughs> Um, for high schools and community-based organizations, they should uh, continue to work um, towards an adoptive, like inclusive policies, ongoing trainings for teachers, administrators, youth counselors, right? And also um, to include um, gay-straight alliances in secondary schools. Um, so for me, it's the elimination of safe spaces but it should be across the board right it should be a conversation in every class right and also um for guidance counselors it's to we recommend that we appoint that there's an appointed dedicated post-secondary um counselor in place um who has experience with um the queer lgbtq plus plus um students to conduct outreach and start conversations about high school to post-secondary education because it's um it's important and, and that conversation can be started at grade nine grade 10 um also we talked about um training that is needed um for these counselors um so um so when uh, guidance counselors are approached by uh queer students um they should know how to handle um, their inquiries, know how to tell them, hey, you can go to George Brown College, you can go to York, you can go to UFT, you can go to Humber, Sheridan. Like, know how to approach them. And if you don't know, find community organizations that can you can pull in to... Um, to have these conversations with um, the student. And it's uh, the entire student body because you have 
your allies, you have your friends who may be able to help someone else outside because it's a network, right? Um, so yeah, those are some of the recommendations that we that we, we talked about. Yeah. yeah. So as we wrap up, I, 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 I would like to know if you have anything else you'd like to say, Lance. <laughs> no, no, I'm just there's one, there are a couple of, there are just a couple of policy things, that, yeah. especially yeah. in the climate that we're in right now. Oh, yeah. When I was on the Black Youth Action Plan, one of our beginning meetings where they were talking about funding more child and youth workers, and one of the arguments I made is that there should be child and youth workers that work specifically with Black queer youth. And another um, member of that advisory committee said, well, shouldn't we just be doing training so people are in more inclusive in general and are not excluding sort of Black queer youth? And I said, yes, but I think there need to be child and youth workers and counselors that specifically work with Black queer youth. And in my ideal world would also do more liaising with Black families. This is a huge gap. We still often are living, working, being in Black communities that are conservative around gender and sexuality and or have been denied opportunities to learn about gender and sexuality in the context of their communities. Sometimes because people think that that's actually not a priority issue or something that we need to be learning about. And that constitutes a huge barrier for us. And I think with policy, we need more child and youth workers that can work directly with or seek to work with Black queer youth. Their numbers are there. There are more young people now that are sort of transitioning, identifying differently, meaning not just as straight, identifying as queer, as lesbian, as you know, as we were talking in class, pansexual, <laughs> sort of bisexual, you know, this is, and where a lot of times our educators and our youth workers haven't caught up to this. They still don't even understand that. So what oftentimes what happens in that case is they again withdraw support or they exclude. So we really need to put our money where our mouth is and really have funding for more child and youth workers that work specifically with Black queer youth and their families and communities that they reside and live in. Right. And, and I'd also like to add a um, recommendation to um, look at um, um, the different um, areas that put huge barriers and challenges for the queer and trans newcomers because they also have this you know, additional um, barriers of yeah. accessing um, mm -hmm. support like OSAP. There's like so many, so many forms yes. to, to complete. And um, we need to look at easier ways that will encourage um, these young people who are brand new to the country and trying to, you know, get a firm footing and encourage them, you know, so that they know that they can, you know, get into the system without all these extra packages that, you know, that's there and, and, and remove some of these things that are not necessary, you know. So I'd like to recommend that. So. I just want to say that also in our focus groups, 
that was one of the reasons why a lot of participants said that they wanted to and appreciated among friends at the 519 because they go to other groups or other support services for newcomers and they do not feel accepted for identifying as queer or trans or lesbian. They feel like they have to suppress or not talk about that aspect of their identity in order to get any services or access to housing or possibilities for work right? This is a huge thing. This is why Among Friends, that group, if you go there, if you've seen, it's a huge group. It's a massive group. And that's because still with all of the talk with inclusive policies and multiculturalism, many of our programs and services are not ready to embrace the, a lot of people use the term now, intersectionalities, of queer and trans identities, along with being a newcomer. There's still very few spaces in this city where that can happen. So I'm really thankful for Among Friends. And I also want to give a shout out to Black Caps Settlement Program, too, because that's an, another space where many people have um, found. But 519 is really sort of leading the Among Friends, and Carlene's work is really leading um, in this area. So I just, I'm just really grateful that we were able to partner and learn with you in this. Thanks. Kanara, do you have anything you want to say as we wrap up? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> um, well, I'm just honestly very, very, very glad that, you know, again, among friends and all these other organizations that are working towards, you know, um, bringing light to these issues. Um, you know, as a youth, as a, as a person who immigrated here at, you know, at the age of three, um, with, uh, you know, my grandmother, it, this, I feel like this would be another, this would be a conversation that I would not be able to have with her. You know, it's, it's very hard. Like oftentimes, uh, queer people who are of a different, um, nationality feel like they have to choose between their queerness and, and their racial identity. And I feel like it's very important that we have a lot of talk about intersectionality and being queer and being, you know, of a racialized uh, group. So I'm very, very glad um, that these organizations exist. I hope to be working and um, making a change. Yes. Queer, black, lesbian, <laughs> youth worker, I would say. <laughs> Elise, anything that you want to say as we wrap um, up? I just like the fact that you brought up... Um, I feel like a lot of the things that they do teach youth workers are just based on what's considered the norm. And um, I think it's very important that they specifically specify like being black, trans and queer and so forth. Um, Cause that experience itself is something I realize that's lacking in the youth worker like industry itself. So like, I mean, and, and I, I don't blame anybody, but it's just, I don't think those things are really taught to the people that are like, that are working there. So it'd be, it'd be actually really a lot better if they were actually taught more on that base. I'll, I'll take that to heart. I'm a teacher. So I'm, really, I'm, I'm like, this, this is like my education. This is like, I'm going to class today. I'm taking notes. Uh, Tanitia, as we lap, wrap up, anything else you would like to uh, add? Um, I'm just happy um, for these kind of conversations and it's uh, being out there in the world. I do hope um, Lance and I get to continue, um, continue on because it's, it's needed, it's necessary. And hopefully it comes to fruition, like something uh, comes from this and um, the right people uh, hear it. And um, yeah, 
And we have to like highlight Elise. Um, she plans on going back to school. Nice. Nice. Um, to actually just get her certification in uh, being a youth worker. Nice, nice, nice. Well, I want to. I want to thank you, Elise. I want to thank you, Carlene, and uh, Tanisha, and Kanari and Lance for uh, for having this conversation with me today to to come in today and uh, and for making this happen because I I learned a lot and I think our listeners will learn a lot as well so thank you very much thank you so much thank you.